Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. To be or not to be has been an important question on the minds of humanity ever since William Shakespeare wrote those words so long ago. I can't think of anybody better to talk about on this subject than my friend Carl Forehand. Carl is a former pastor, an award-winning author of the wonderful books Apparent Faith, for which he won a 2020 Christian Indie Award, and his second book entitled The Tea Shop. He and his wife, Laura, host the Desert Sanctuary podcast and website. He writes a thought-provoking column for Patheos, and somehow in the midst of all of that and working a full-time job, finds time to still be one of my best friends in the world. He's got a brand new book that just released called Being that I think is extraordinarily important and helpful. And I wanted to come out of podcasting retirement to have a conversation with him on that theme. What does it mean to be? Welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Carl Forehand. Thank you. I love your introductions, man. I could just sit and listen to that stuff. <laughs> well, I'm glad the patrons can finally see what I see all often when I'm reading the introduction about you. You kind of blush a little bit. You're like, wait, is that is he yeah. talking about me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I and when I try to do something like that, I'll say, I'm so excited. And people will say, Well, I can really tell you're excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, if I, I, it just doesn't sound right, you know, and I, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm who I am, you know, but anyway, I'm, I'm really happy to be here and be talking to you. Anytime I can talk to you is good. Well, I, I enjoy our talks. Uh, you know, we, we, tr- we tried to record an interview a while back and technology was not cooperating with these two middle-aged white men. And so um, we ended up just having a chat and that was great. And I always enjoyed chatting with you. And I got to be a part of your launch party for your new book last week. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm looking forward to this conversation as well, because your new book, uh, and we're not here just to plug a book. I really do think this conversation is going to help folks, but I'm holding it up for the video, Being a Journey Toward Presence and Authenticity. Um, I, I feel like, and, and I know Alexander Shia and others have said this as well, this is your masterpiece. This is the best thing you've written to date. There's more of your heart, more. I've always seen some of you in each of your books, but this one is like holding you in my hands, which I love. That's very comforting to me. Mm. Um, And so I'm grateful for that. Mm. Tell us how authentic presence became so important to you. Yeah, I think it's been a gradual thing that it it started, you know, in my deconstruction when I wrote Apparent Faith. It was opening up just to asking questions you know, and I, I framed apparent faith around, you know, me being a father and, um, you know, really honestly um, asking questions for the first time in my life. Because, you know, for 20 years as a pastor, I'm defending my box. And, and it, you know, there, sure, there's questions in the back of my mind, but I wouldn't let those get too far. And so, I don't feel like I was living authentically then. I, w- I was, in fact, trying to fit in, right? And that was that was what I was good at because I craved, you know, I, I experienced rejection and I craved acceptance, and that worked well for a church planner because if you can go fit into an, a community and be who they want you to be, we never framed it or said it like that, but that's what it was. 
And when I did, I was successful at that. There was a lot of pain and so on in it. But then when, you know, during my deconstruction, the tea shop is essential because it's about when I, for once, just finally said, okay, I'm going to sit down and be present with this dude that was probably a Buddhist. And he uh, kind of awakened this in me that what it's like to be be totally present and, and to be authentic because he was he was one of the most authentic people I've met. But then you know the I think the first part of the book says something. It says uh, never. It's entitled "Never Waste a Good Crisis," right? It's a quote by my friend Dr. Paul Fitzgerald who's in every book I've written and you know, most conversations I have, he's, he's, he's deep in my life, uh, just like you are. But it says, don't waste a good crisis. And, and this crisis came about uh, because of, you know, all the shadow and the things I'm stuffing down and, and it came to the surface. And I, I think, you know, I finally got to a point in my life where, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to, to uncover things in my life and trying to uh, live the second half of my life, you know, like Richard Rohr talks about that second half of life. And, and on my arm, I tattooed, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the Chinese word for uh, authenticity. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to do that. And, and then so here comes this crisis where I felt like, you know, that's what I talk about in the first part of the book, where I felt like my thoughts were crashing into each other. I felt like everything I had stuffed down was coming out at the same time. It was a dark night, you know, of some sort, maybe maybe the big one, I don't know. So I came to that point, and, and there really wasn't um, any other options. I, I seriously considered suicide. Uh, I seriously just considered driving away and going somewhere else. You, you know, those kind of thoughts that you have. But then I made the decision to stay. And when I did, there was, there was no other way to do it than to be authentic, than to be real, uh, to be present with um, not only in the moment I was in, but with who I was. Does that make sense? Because um, I, had to, I had to deal with that inner child, all of that stuff, and my inner critic, and, and, and I'm doing this all, you know, sitting in a recliner by myself in um, the hermitage at an, um, whatever you call where the nuns live, um, because the sisters, uh, I'd been going to a class where some Benedictine sisters were teaching uh, the spiritual direction classes, and uh, I really did, it. It was like I, you know, it was like you know, go or go home, right? It, it's go time, and and I for for whatever reason I realized that, and and I said, there's no other way to do it. I, I it's not me fitting into a community. It's not me trying to please the board at a church. It's not me delivering a sermon and see if they like it or how much it steps on their toes. Um, this was just me, you know, and my real self. And, and it, it was time to go to work or time to go home. I mean, like really go home, right? 
and I didn't have any other I didn't have any other options. I didn't, I, religious platitudes were useless to me. You know, it wasn't scripture coming to mind. It wasn't anything like that. It, it was a you know it was a book by a, kind of a secular guy about shadow. Uh, reading that book, talking to my friend, talking to my spiritual director uh, through text and things like that, and saying, you know, are you going to be real or not? And so that that crisis, you know, brought me to that point where I could once and for all begin to grow and change and heal. Uh, and it was it, it was just it was probably the most important moment in my life was that that time. What was your why behind that? You talked about seriously considering suicide and and man, I don't want to imagine a world without you in it. So I'm so grateful that yeah. you made the choice to stay. Um, what was it that made staying worth it to you? I know that when I was living in my shadow, my greatest fear was that anybody would figure out who I really was. That people mm-hmm. would because my fear was, you know, they're gonna they're gonna see that who they thought I was has been a facade all along. And it's going to ruin me. So there's a huge risk in being your authentic self when you've been living uh, in a mask for as long as you and I did. Uh, in our, yeah. I'm guessing the pastoring had something to do with that. I mean, there's an enormous amount of pressure on a pastor to live up to a certain ideal that really doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, what made it worth it to you to take the chance of losing everything? Um, I think that I'd been through... Um, just enough deep work, um, introspective work that I had just enough hope um, that it could get better. And, and there, there was just enough, you know, from some work I'd done previous in that year that probably kind of opened everything up. And maybe it was a little bit of the tea shop guy and going, that guy, you know, that guy can do it. It was just a a little bit of the encouragement from Dr. Paul, my other spiritual director, that, that they seemed to know. They seemed to say, you know, maybe you should do some shadow work, you know. And they're just enough. I borrowed, I think, just enough of their hope and belief but it was kind of like, this is it. Either we're going to, like I said, we're going to go or go home. And and I kind of borrowed from them. Every time I have you on, I get some questions when you use that term shadow work. Mm-hmm. When you're using that term, what does it mean to you? And what practically does shadow work look like? Well, shadow, shadow would be everything I've ignored, everything I've pushed down, everything I've denied. Um in the past, you know, either because I was too young to deal with it or I was incapable of dealing with it or it was just too painful to deal with at the time. Um, but your body still wants to resolve that. And so it, it stores it. I, I want people to know that I didn't write this book from a professional standpoint with professional explanations for everything, but this is kind of a user's guide, you know, um, but that's that's my understanding is that in that shadow when like let's say my wife and I clashed or we triggered each other, then that that kind of stuff comes out, but it usually comes out sideways. Uh, it's it's real reactive, real 
where did that come from, right? It's that kind of, and that would be what I would call shadow. And and the most effective way I know to deal with shadow is is through a process called focusing, where we just talk about how do you feel? Where do you feel it? Uh, a part of me feels angry. Let's and and when we when we set with that, Eugene, the the guy that kind of founded focusing in the seventies, uh, Eugene Genlin said, and I don't, I never remember how to pronounce his name, Genlin or Genlin, but he but he said, when something is unfelt, it stays the same, but when it is felt, it changes, and so we have these repressed things, we have trauma. Um, that's buried in us. We call that collectively the shadow. We thank Carl Jung, you know, for that language and so on a hundred years ago. But but when we're able to set with it, I think the key word is with compassion. To set with those things with compassion, then uh, a shift kind of takes place in us. You know, because there is that is stored within us with our inner bodies and it wants to resolve itself. It's trying to and and now as an adult, let's say something happened to you as a child, and now as an adult you can set with that younger uh felt sense of yourself, you know, and be with it and have compassion for it, especially compassion for it. And even to have compassion for that that critical part of you, the inner critic. That, that criticizes you, that, you know, how I criticize myself internally, have compassion for that as well. I, I think I, I've observed in others that I've led through that and, and a lot when in these focusing sessions that I've done uh, where literally something shifts in me. And now that tr- that same thing still may trigger me, but it, but it, it tends to be a response now instead of a reaction. You, if you're around our house, you could hear Laura and I walk around the house and often, you know, we'll kind of trigger each other, you know, like couples do. And, sh- and she'll say something kind of matter of fact, like, you know, I, that, I really don't like it when you say that that way. You know, instead of the, the you know, the, the root brain kind of reaction that you get from shadow stuff. Uh, where you know you know what I'm talking about how it evolves into don't say anything publicly right <laughs> but you know it, it evolves and and it and you react um, but that's that's the big difference for us I think that that I, I go through my work life I go through my online life and as we do this internal work this shadow work uh, I'm a lot less reactive and more responsive. I can still respond to those things. I can still say, I don't like what you said, but I'm less likely, you know, to have that root brain kind of gut thing that happens. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, I think, I think I might say it um, in, in this way, just you don't take it personally, right? That, yeah. that there was a time when right. every little trigger is personal. It's felt personally because there's so much pain inside mm-hmm. that when somebody even steps in that direction of that wound, it just brings it all to a head mm-hmm. and you just erupt, right? And yeah. so 
you have learned through focusing and through meditation and contemplation, you've learned to respond instead of react. I hear you and Laura use that on your podcast a lot, responding instead of reacting. Um, And and there's such a huge difference. And I don't think that I ever really knew the difference until I heard y'all talking about it in the context of your marriage. So I appreciate uh, the Mm -hmm. fact that y'all are so open about that. That that helps those of us who are, you know, struggling to follow. Yeah. I used to call the shadow before I knew what to call it. I used to call it the red faced boy. Hmm. It's, it's our own red faced boy, you know, inside of us that, that, um, you know, maybe gets angry, maybe gets really sad, you know, those kind of things. But it's, yeah, you're, you're responding. I don't want to just say adult because (laughs) that doesn't really describe anything, but it's a more mature, thing that happens naturally after we do some of this internal work. But I I say that very clearly in the introduction, I think, don't read my book, Praying for Miracles, Um, because I said it the other night in the launch, the miracle is you, and and you're, you're built to overcome some of this stuff, and it, some of it's going to take some work. And I can't transport you directly, you know, to boardwalk. <laughs> we got we got to go around the board. You know, we got to we got to go through the work. Yeah. Well, I appreciated that so much in your introduction because you you, you make it very clear from the get go. You are not interested in being anyone's guru. You're not trying to amass a following. You're not promising instant results if they can just get the right mantra or just you know learn the right phrases uh, to re reshift their focus in life. You're not promising overnight change to anybody. There's a lot of hard work involved in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, but I do say in all my books too, that I wouldn't write about it if it wasn't worth it. You know, <laughs> if the payoff wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't good enough, yeah. you know, what, what do you think are some obstacles to us being authentically present in our own lives? What keeps us from that? I mean, I hear I hear you talking about authenticity, and, and I just wonder why haven't I lived my whole life this way? What are the things that keep that hold us back from that? Um, I, I mean, I guess that some people. I think in the long run, people accept you better when you are authentic. But our mind says I have to be who they want me to be. Um, like I said, it worked well for me as a church planner. Not, not really to be authentic, um, but to be what they wanted me to be. That would give me acceptance. That would make me successful, quote unquote. Yeah, I think we do. You know, I think spiritual bypassing comes into a lot of things. I think, uh, you know, as a society, uh, you may have saw my post today. I'm, I feel like I'm transforming away from being as angry about the stuff that happened in religion more towards having, you know, having some compassion for them. But uh, a lot of times religion, we're too busy with the organization of religion and and we just bypass problems and and we don't ever seem to build in enough time to be with people, to be in presence with people enough um, to help each other heal. You know, and and consequently, then we keep re-injuring each other, right? Because we're we're too busy. You know, I, I'm thankful. One thing I'm thankful for in the pandemic is 
we didn't have as much we could do. And so we Zoomed together and did podcasts together and things like that. And that has brought closeness and some healing in certain situations. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> I don't know. I do, I do think that religion plays a role for many of us. I think what you're talking about spiritual bypassing, and I think we can define that a little bit maybe just in conversation. But I think we are taught to, to live a blessed life to the point that we won't face any real problems in our life. And we don't want to talk mm-hmm. about any real issues, especially if they're long-term, long-standing issues that have been going on since childhood, right? We're just taught to, you know, have faith and muddle through and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and uh, you know, that God is good all the time and He's going to come through when we need Him to. And I think a lot of that just leads to bypassing and we just never get around to dealing with root issues. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't um, have an expiration date and they don't just go away. And that was the thing I knew enough about to teach my children before they left. I, I hope they got it. You know, that, that the things you ignore don't just go away. <laughs> they, they're going to stick around. And I knew that much when I was raising them. And it's, it's definitely true with the trauma in our life. You know, it, we may think that we ignore it and it disappears or vaporizes or something eventually because we ignored it long enough but it's it's like a you know an internal irs agent or something you know it's it's going to come back to visit you and probably not in a congenial way right you know it's going to be more painful next time and 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 i you know that's my story after 20 years of ministry of never having enough time to to address it. And, and I was very interested in figuring people out and understanding people and, and wanting to know about this kind of thing. But I, I seem to never have time for myself to do that work, you know. Yeah, I know that when I was pastoring, it just wasn't part of the job, right? It wasn't the job to focus on self. It, it almost felt selfish because the way we're raised up in ministry, self-care would be thought of as a selfish luxury, right? We were supposed to be pouring our lives out, right? I remember, um, did you ever hear about David Brainerd? Uh, he was a young missionary, burned himself out, just burned a candle at both ends, died at like 28, 29 years old, just completely frazzled, just completely gave his life away. And this guy was held up as a hero. And I'm sure in many ways he was, but he was held up as a hero of someone we should emulate. Like we need to burn ourselves out for Jesus, you know, and, and that just yeah. leads to broken homes. That leads to broken families. That leads to broken men yeah. and women. And uh, it, I, I got really good at sweeping everything under the rug. But like you just said, sweeping things under the rug doesn't actually make them go anywhere. Right. And they, you know, I think part of it is we didn't know how, you know, and, you know, I had leadership and people I looked up to that didn't know how, you know, if they, they felt if they got the right doctrine and did the right things practically in their organizations and, uh, then we just reproduced that, and we did reproduce it all right. We produced, reproduced dysfunction, you know, and we traumatized each other and, and all those things. But we didn't know, and we didn't know. And now, I, I think now at a rapid pace, we're learning. <laughs> we're learning about 
the religion itself. We're learning about healing, self-care, mindfulness, all of this this stuff, I think, that's going to help us move into the future. I think boundaries are a big part of that, too, right? Because as you learn mm-hmm. who you are authentically, you learn to say no to some things that maybe you were saying yes to before. Right. I remember, I remember hearing Billy Graham, and he was one of my heroes. I, I wanted to be the next Billy Graham. I mean, for most of my adult life, that's what I wanted and for me was to be the next Billy Graham. And I remember hearing him talk to a, a television interviewer, and he was talking about coming home from months-long crusades overseas and how his little son said, who's that man in bed with mommy? Hmm. Because his son didn't know who he was. And I remember hearing that thinking, oh, this man's so dedicated to the cause of Christ. But today I hear a story like that and think, there are just no boundaries there. I mean, and, and, and we can see the repercussions of families who made those choices and what it has done to generation after generation of pastors' kids who made those, you know, pastors made those choices. And it's just destroyed people left and right. And kids grow up either, you know, ultra fundamentalist or they don't want anything to do with it uh, to, to polar opposite extremes, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and I, please, anybody who's listening, don't think that I'm bad-mouthing Billy Graham. That's not what we're here to talk about. I, I'm using Billy Graham as a stand-in for me. I didn't have any boundaries. And I use stories like that to validate the fact that I didn't have any boundaries. But boundaries are a really important part of being who you actually are. Right, right. Well, I, as I said earlier, I really love this book. And I'm going to hold it up again because I hope everybody will get a hold of it. Not only does it have an incredible cover, I love this cover with this uh this wanderer who's presented with all these doors and all these options. And this, it's just so much symbolism in this cover. I just love it. Ralph Palindo did an incredible job uh, on this cover. But again, the inside, I really feel like this is masterful writing. Carl, you've done an incredible job. The content is just beautiful. Um, I said earlier, it's, it's your best book to date, in my opinion. I love all of them, but this one's the best. Tell us why you wrote the book. What brought you to the point that you were willing to put? You dive pretty deep into your shadow experience in this book. Why was it worth taking a risk of putting that much of yourself out there into this book? Yeah, so this has been almost three years ago now that the first part of this book happened. So um, about a year ago, after all of this work and and some growth and and many things had happened since then. I started writing the third part of this book was called Learning to Be. And there's being with crisis, being with pain, being with my dog, being with nature. And it was it was just all the wonderful parts about um, learning this being and becoming that I'm experiencing now. It's, you know, started in the tea shop and and it's it's kind of moved forward. Um, and so I, I started writing those things down and blogging about them, and 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 I write to know what I think. And so I started processing that that part of it. And I told Ralph, my publisher, I was writing it, and uh, he said, "Well, that sounds kind of interesting." And um, then, um, in the meantime, I had talked to Dr. Paul. And we had talked about you know the the thing that happened to me you know, the, whatever you call that. When I did all that work, I was in, when I was in, in the, um, hermitage 
I said, I, I should write that down. I'm just nervous. I don't want to write. You know, I, it, it's significant. Uh, and I, I want to process it again. And he said, well, you don't have to publish it. And I said, okay. And I, I said, I probably won't. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was, I was off on a temporary duty thing to make some money. And um, it was in South Carolina. And I remember my roommate was there. And I said, I'm about to write something if, you know, I, it's, it's going to be tough for me to write. So just never mind me. And he didn't. He, he left me alone. And I, I just kept, when I, the, my first thought was, I'll write it down, and and then maybe someone like Dr. Paul or Mark Karras or somebody could interpret it for me, you know, and say this is what Carl was going through, and nobody would do that, you know. <laughs> they were I don't know why, but they didn't they weren't interested. And then uh, Mark said, "But I'll read it, you know, while you write it." So I would write a chapter and I'd send it to him, and I write a chapter and I'd send it to him. And I was kind of doing this at night after I was done working, and. He's he's going, yeah, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then when I got done and I was exhausted and, you know, just, do you guys say this, war slick? You know, I was worn out. Yeah, you know, worn war slap slick, out. Yeah. Worn slap out, probably cried almost as much as when that actually happened. But Mark's, Mark said, well, uh, what I think you need to do now is go deeper. <laughs> I say, you got to be kidding me. Uh, yeah, so it was one of those deep breaths, and I thought about it for a couple of days. I was there for a while, and I said, okay. And I, I just started to write again, and so there, there is, I'm looking, six things, going deeper with my fear, my anger, bypassing like we talked about a minute ago. And just went a little deeper with with how those things had affected my life and how how they plagued me and and how I was processing them now, you know, after dealing with some shadow issues. And I loved that. And so then um, that first part I talked about being learning to be. Um, I, I kind of brought all this home, and Mark Karras has looked over these things, and he's going, this is really good. You should do something with this. And I kind of brought it all home with me from South Carolina, and I remember um, just sitting in the recliner here and thinking about those three different things, you know, my story part, going deeper, and learning to be. And when I flipped them around and, and realized that was the progression, of, of, you know, the, the, the encounter, the, the, the time in the hermitage, then going deeper, and then now learning to be. That, that was somewhat of a process, a story that needed to be put together. And that's, that's when I got on the phone and begged Ralph to talk to me and said, we got to do, you know, we got to do this. This is, this is the story. You know, it's the, it's the thing I want to communicate with everybody. And that's as best I remember it, how it happened. Who did you write this book for? I know we, we all, when we're writing a book, we want everybody to read it. But 
who do you, who's your intended audience here? Who do you hope will read it and what do you hope they will take away from the experience? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it, it's probably, you know, slightly geared, geared towards people that have had experiences with religion. Uh, and so, I mean, because, just because my story is, has that in it, but I, I think it could be for anybody, and I know that's dangerous to, to have a real broad audience, but I think some people say all of us have trauma. You know, all of us have shadow. All of us could benefit from being more authentic and more present. So I say, I say be where you are and be who you are. Be present, be authentic. And I think that's for everybody. So I don't know. You know, we'll see as it rolls out. I think it's going to be what it's going to be and it's going to go where it needs to go and, and those kind of things. So I think everybody can benefit from it. So far, I've gotten a little bit of feedback from it, and it seems like men and women like it equally so far. You know, I think uh, Katie, our friend Katie Valentine, was real excited that I was transparent in the book, you know, instead of being like the typical patriarchal man in religion, you know. I think it's for everybody. You'd, you'd probably want to be above a certain age, you know, where you can understand it. But yeah, it just seems to me it would be of particular use to somebody who has, who, who's just really. I know this is such a cliche phrase, but people who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, they've swept mm-hmm. things under the rug for so long that they know have never been resolved. Um, what came to my mind as I read the the original draft of the book, and I know it's been edited some since then, but when I read that early early version of it, I remember back in my Celebrate Recovery days, hearing either John Baker, who recently passed away, or Rick Warren say, you can't heal what you refuse to feel. And there are so many things that we've gotten numb to that have never healed, and they keep erupting in our lives over and over again. And I know that there are people listening right now that have experienced that over and over again, and they don't know why they lash out. They don't know why they react the way they do when they get bumped, when they get triggered. And sweeping things under the rug further or learning to manage your reaction is not freedom. But your book lays out a path. That's a big deal, you know, because we said we can't, uh, we were taught we can't trust our feelings. I think I'm here to say that's baloney because you, you can, once, once you get honest, once you get, get real, how you feel you you can you can trust it, and in fact, it's going to be the path that leads you back. And but we were we were taught, you know, don't trust your feelings. Just you know, trust what you believe. Well, I found out some of the things I believed weren't right, and they they didn't sit with me. Uh, but when I started to focus on on uh, what was in there, how I felt, that's when I began to heal. Absolutely. Um, I'm excited also about this book because you're releasing a companion workbook with it to help us process our journey. Tell us about the companion workbook. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's my first book. Ralph made me put questions in the back in my apparent faith in the back of each chapter. Um, And then for the tea shop, we didn't do any questions, but uh, both Ralph and Alexander and, and Nora, all three of the publishers 
strongly encouraged me to produce a companion guide. And what it amounts, what it will be is a 30-day journey where you read a chapter, some one chapters for two days and so on, but it takes you kind of on a 30-day journey uh, with the book. And there's, there's just four or five questions every day, but there's a lot of white space. Uh, it's intended to be where you can really start to experience being in solitude and, and deep diving, so to speak, into you know, some of those uh, and, and hopefully interact with the book and also experience it within uh, I'm excited about it. I, we produced it so quickly. I'm afraid to look at it too closely, afraid there might be errors in it still. But <laughs> well, I've, looked, I've looked at it pretty thoroughly. It's pretty good. It's, it's really good. The, the, I, I think uh, it helps us process through that journey. I'm glad, I'm glad to have it. Yeah, the other books that we've been through a hundred times, I can, there still can be errors in them. <laughs> You're going to yeah. find that when you get yours, when you work on yours. Yeah, if, if, that, if that ever gets to a place that of That will happen. Yeah. That is going to happen. Hey, um, talk to us about Shia Sophia House for a minute. Um, your book has been released on a new imprint of Choir. Choir is who's mm-hmm. published your last two books, but this is um, this is a new imprint of Choir. So how did this new imprint come to be, and how did you end up publishing with them? Yeah, I, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I, I know that, that I was having Nora, for whatever reason, to edit uh, the Being book. And it wasn't long before Ralph and Nora both were calling me. Uh, Nora, Sophia, and Alexander, John Shia, um, they, they formed um, Shia Sophia House, and it's an imprint of choir, which is where Ralph Palendo's at, Raphael. And he has, he has published all my books so far. But they, they, they're going to be focused on, on transformational books, that have more of a mystical kind of bent to them, but they want to appeal to all streams of Christianity, you know, as well as a little bit outside of that. But I, you know, I, I'm very happy to be with them. It's, it's a privilege, you know, that I get to talk to Alexander, John Shia, you know, and, converse with him about our book that we worked on together he actually uh, helped me pretty greatly with um, the first couple of chapters uh, how to lay them out and and help me with the rewrite of some of that so well it was incredible it really looked like you had found like you had found a I mean, I know you had a publishing family before, but this was like a more intimate circle in that family. I, the way they showed up for your launch party, uh, you know, the video from Nora, Mark Karras was there, um, and then Alexander Shia from Spain in the middle of the night gets on to tell everybody how great this book is and what an honor it was to publish it. I mean, that is incredible. Yeah, it, it was very affirming. I um, That night, probably... I, Within a couple of days, I wanted to edit that and get it, you know, get all the technical mess ups and all the, <laughs> you know, all that stuff, that extra stuff out of there so that I could just keep it. It's out of my my YouTube, but I, I wanted to keep it because it was so affirming to have 
that many people, along with Elena, who sang for us and, and everything else. It was so good. It really was. It was a special night. And uh, uh, before I let you go, I want to hear about what's next for you. I know you're always working on something. And I think you've probably <laughs> already worked on some things that haven't been released to the public yet. So what, what's next for you? What can you tell us about? Yeah, well, what I'm the one one thing I'm thinking about is during the winter winter, I took on the challenge of writing a novel. I was listening to someone on TV or you know an ad on Facebook or something say that all you got to do to write a novel is write a thousand words a day, and then in sixty days you have sixty thousand words. That's that's enough for a novel, and so. It always toyed around with that. So the idea I got was um, when I was I was kind of thinking about renting some event space here in our small, tiny town, and it's in this hotel, um, this old hotel that that's was founded a hundred years ago or something like that. And when I w- when I went down there, the lady told me it was haunted. <laughs> she told me stories about stuff under the ground, you know, tunnels under the ground and, um, you know, mafia boss visiting there one time to that hotel and all this. It's just got my, my juices going about this hotel. So, um, I sit down and, and just started writing and I ask, uh, of all people, Paul Young, uh, the author of the shack, he, we, we talk every once in a while and he did a recommendation for this book. And so I, I emailed him and said, how do you write a novel? And he said, just get in the river and start paddling and let it take you where it takes you. And don't worry about it. You can edit it later. And so that was that was the, all the advice I had. Write 1,000 words a day and get in the river and start paddling. Or don't start paddling. Just let it take you where it's going to go. And after 45 days, I'd written 72,000 words. Whew. And it was one of the funnest things I've ever done. And um, the story went somewhere. The story, oddly enough, was based on, you know, fragments of my life and based on that hotel, but not about that hotel. And it was just the, it was just one of the funnest things I've ever done. And so I believe we're going to publish it, you know, next spring, so early next year. We, we want to do some interactive groups and some things around the Bean Book, but we're going to kind of have to see how that develops. Uh, I'd love to do focusing sessions and do focusing groups that, that expose people to this um, healing process. You know, um, right now I'm just taking a deep breath, you know, after the launch party and, and kind of... Uh, sending out books and things like that. So, Well, I love the book. I'm grateful for it. And I hope more people get a hold of it. Um, friends, if you're listening and, and this conversation has triggered something within you uh, to stop sweeping things under the rug and maybe start dealing with some shadow that you've noticed in your own life, maybe you're ready to make that transformation, that step from reacting to responding, and you just need somebody to help you along that journey. I really do encourage you to reach out to Carl and his wife, Laura. They are incredible. Uh, they're incredible friends, but they're also very gifted uh, 
I don't think they would call themselves spiritual directors, but that, but they can help you along this journey uh, from their own experience. And so I encourage you to reach out to them. Companion. Yeah, just a companion. companion. Right. Yeah. Just, just somebody to walk with you, which is really what it's all about, right? We heal best in community. Mm-hmm. So many of us have been off by ourselves trying to heal ourselves for so long and we're frustrated and ready to quit. We need somebody to walk with us who's not going to give up. I, I remember hearing Paul Young say when he reached the very bottom, uh, somebody said to him, there's nothing you can tell me that's going to make me walk away from you. Mm-hmm. And so he had something to hang on to, no matter how bad it got. And so we all need a companion. So if, if that's you, if you hear me today and you're struggling and you're ready to start making that transition from reacting to responding, I encourage you to reach out to Carl and Laura Forehand. Carl, tell folks how they can get a hold of you online. We have several different things, but most, if you just go to Carl Forehand, like spelled with a K and Forehand like in tennis, uh, carlforehand.com, it kind of points to all the other things that we do points to the books. The books are on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and such. And, but that carlforehand.com kind of gets to everything else, you know, including our Facebook group called the desert sanctuary and um, all of that stuff. So I would just point them to that. I hope you will check out The Desert Sanctuary. It's a fantastic podcast. Carl and Laura have some incredible conversations. They are insanely open and transparent for a married couple uh, with stuff that's being shared with the public. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Listen to The Desert Sanctuary podcast. Check out this book, Being a Journey toward presence and authenticity. It's available on Amazon. If you want a signed copy, Carl might be willing to to send you one. Um, you can buy it directly from him. Uh, if he's got the time to, to get the shipping handled, uh, I'll let you reach out to him for that. We're going to put links to the book and the podcast and to his Pathios column in the show notes for this episode. Carl, my brother, I love you, man. I'm so Glad grateful for this time with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you soon here in Florida. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make that happen. We better because I've already reserved some stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) it's coming up pretty quick. Yeah, it is. I'm excited to see you guys. All right, brother. I love you. See you soon. Love you, man. See you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or by joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You can help us produce future episodes by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash messyspirituality. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at messyspirituality.org. We'll be back soon with another new episode.